Hey there, folks. This is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. Thank you. I apologize up front for the urgency in my voice, but sometimes events take itself to the point where you need to open the passageways, you need to have the conversation, you need to air out the situation as it's happening. Seconds ago, Simon and I were involved in some pre-show planning. Yes, it loosely yes. happens. And we were discussing a segment we've got coming up. It is about Jodie Foster and her best movies, okay? Yep. Simon Foster dropped this pearl of a line, okay, when I suggested that all Jodie Foster conversations begin and end with contact because it's easily her best film. And then it's he fine. dropped in this statement, it's a fine film except for the end of the movie, at which point yeah. I got outraged, but the time countdown was happening for me to start recording, so I haven't had time to properly digest this. We can't proceed with the podcast. We're going to have to stop for a moment. Simon, I'm opening the floor to you. You've got 30 seconds. Wow. Explain to me what is wrong with the end of the movie Contact, because I would dare suggest it's perfect. Oh, boy, you put me on the spot. I remember seeing the film. I remember loving the film. I read the book a couple of times, actually, so I was very excited about the film. I thought the notion that, and spoiler alert if you haven't seen Contact, the notion that Deep Space is actually a place of memory and it's where her... Uh, deep-seated memories of her father exist and that he is the one that carries the message to her. I thought that kind of kerfuffled a little bit. Now, I, I don't get me wrong, I love contact and I'm keen to see where our intermission plays out in praise of Jodie Foster, our, each our three favourite performances of her. Um, of her. So, look, I'm willing to continue this discussion in the intermission, but for me, contact is almost a perfect movie, not the perfect movie. Look... I'm not going to waste time on this one just yet, Simon. I'm going to politely refrain. We will get to this later on. But just quietly, I quite enjoy the movie Contact. I think it's rather good. Sorry, there's a visual prop now for the people watching the video feed of this. And I do have the movie, con yeah. the book Contact, written by one the Carl Sagan. The tie-in, have you? I've got, the, I've got the original Carl. I'm actually looking around for my copy of Contact, which I know is here. Honey, can you bring me my copy of Contact? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to note that this was not an adaptation of the movie. This is the original book, but with one of those fancy movie wraparound covers. Nice. Very anyway, I don't know where we're heading with this segment. Let's today. just let, let's dive in. Uh, we've got some big things on the schedule for today. The shed, I believe that the kids call us. Uh, I'm going to take a look at lingo. Uh, if you're reading Variety. Hey, look, I'm going to talk about the new installment of a Jodie Foster-related TV program. It's called True Detective Night Country. Simon is going to be taking a look at the latest... Nic Simon, stop talking. Simon's going to take a look at Nicolas Cage's latest. It's called Dream Scenario. We're also going to have some chats about Ted, the TV series spin-off from the very popular movie and its less-than-popular sequel. Uh, Simon's going to chat a bit about The Holdovers, which I can't imagine he'd have negative things to say because it's amazing. Uh, Criminal Record is a brand-new show on the Apple TV. And Simon's going to discuss something named Nighthawks. Folks, this is a lot of program, and we can only get to it if we play the opening titles. This is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan, joined by Simon. Simon... 
let's not dilly dally talk about weather. Let's not find out yeah. like whether we're well or not. We're both well. It's the middle of summer in Australia. Of course, it's bad. Of course, it's hot. Of course, we're sweating in all of yeah. the places. We don't need to worry about that. What I need to know from you, Simon, okay, yeah. is have you had a good week of screen watching? Well, it's interesting you ask because the week began with what is now considered one of the most dire uh, opening monologues of any award show and the final nail in what could be the death of the Golden Globes. So uh, I felt for him. I couldn't watch it at the time live. It was such an excruciating experience to watch Joe Coy try to crack a few gags. Um, I went back and watched it a couple couple of times since and did a bit of did a bit of forensic work on it to see where he stumbled, to see where the wrong breath was taken, to see which jokes just weren't properly formed. It's been kind of fascinating to go over and see how bad it really was and how it collapsed in such a heap. But hey, those Golden Globes, I mean, as average as the rest of the show turned out to be, they didn't really have a chance after that opening monologue to be anything other than dire. Yeah, look, the ratings generally were perfectly fine. They they were an improvement on last year's really dire result, but still not really what the ratings once were. Uh, obviously, yeah. what, when the show last aired was about three years ago in terms of like a regular uh, Golden Globes and TV markets changed quite a bit in those three years. So where it's currently sitting at with 9 million, that might be enough to convince CBS to give it another go next year. I doubt anyone else will bother making an effort for it. It's only 9 million viewers. You could probably do that with less effort and less um, just annoyance in your um, just week. And NCIS repeat gets about that, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, not quite that, but like, there's certainly other things you could do as a programmer to try to generate something similar. I'm not sure there's a compelling case for the Golden Globes at this point. The actual awards themselves were just like an average award show. There was a few good moments and a few dull moments and a few laughs and a few cringes. So, I mean, the actual handing out of the awards, I didn't think was any better or worse than we've seen in the past, but... I think it is worse. To make... <laughs> to make it well, no, no, it just is a, a like just the spectacle. It was it was amateurish the way it was done. You could sense some feeling in the room for the winners, and when Lily Gladstone won, these were all significant moments. But there was such an air of of no, the ship's already sailed. Where where this one's a, a, a you know a lost cause. It was it was a tough three hours. I watched all three hours of it. Look, even Penske Media Publications were critical of the Golden oh, Globes, which I thought was. Dead. Totally yeah. butchered. Oh, I thought that was right. kind of incredible. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, folks, we're not going to talk about the Golden Globes because they're garbage. Uh, instead, we are going to dive right into a handful of reviews. It stinks. Simon, I feel that the big title of the week is the much-anticipated return of True Detective. And so let's keep that as some sizzle and instead talk about a Nicolas Cage movie called Dream Scenario. Good trailer. I've heard middling comments. Why does the zebra look the way it does? <laughs> so embarrassing. Hey, focus. Is this how it went? No, it's different now. Paul, you've been on my mind recently. Yeah? Because you keep popping up in my dreams. You don't do anything, you're just there. So, this specific person, the remarkable nobody, I've also had that experience. Do you have a picture? Nicolas Cage is... Doing one of his, well, I want to say serious films, but it's a, it's a comedy of sorts, a, a very smart film uh, in which he plays a, a professor 
uh, a tenured professor who is very upset that he's not sort of given more notice in the world. He's a very obscure figure, kind of blends into the background. But when he starts uh, appearing in people's dreams, not to any, in any meaningful way, just sort of being there, walking through them or standing there watching the dream unfold, he takes on a, a certain celebrity and what begins as a, a, a bit of wish fulfillment on his part, uh, he gets to be famous just for doing nothing in people's dreams, suddenly takes a bad turn when his life starts to unravel, his marriage starts to fall apart, and the person that appears in everyone else's dreams is a um is, is a nasty figure is a horrible figure starts doing terrible things to people in their dreams so he becomes this social outcast um it's a film that i found fascinating because it really does deal with fame and celebrity and the modern definition of that and the price of that sort of faustian bargain that you, you you strike when you decide to become famous or accidentally become famous in in nicholas cage's character's case um but it's actually a very sweet film about a man who in the very opening scenes of the film has everything that he wants. He's got the loving wife played by Julianne Nicholson. He's got uh, two teenage daughters who treat him with a modicum of respect, which is maybe all you can hope for from teenage daughters. Um, and he has a, a good position and an attentive class who sit in on his um, theories on, on bioevolution. Um, but in wanting more and craving more and craving the shallowness of celebrity, he starts to stumble badly. And it, it really is the beginning of his his end um, as a man and as a in all aspects of his life. So this is a cautionary tale about fame. Cage, he does that every man thing. It's kind of similar to what he did in the adaptation here, this sort of that schlubby type of character who's kind of on the edge of being quite comical but is actually very real and he finds this really interesting way of of, of telling this this character story uh obviously we're talking about when you're an adaptation the one of the two characters he played in that film was yes. a character yeah, like that yeah, yeah exactly right I mean, and, yeah, obviously right. considering the nature of donald kaufman and his subsequent passing it would just be i guess maybe offensive to suggest that the late great donald kaufman portrayed, was portrayed in such a way when obviously he was not that yeah. man in real life exactly right so cage is terrific in this if you're a, a, a he's I don't think you can say, ever, even in his bad films, and he's made a handful of bad films, he's never phoning it in, Nicolas Cage. He's always thoroughly engaged with his character, trying to do different things. I think it was, it might have been Ethan Hawke or, or, or maybe Tim Robbins or one of his sort of peers said that, I think it was, no, who's the, who, well, who's the guy from The Sure Thing? John Cusack. I think John Cusack said, watching Nicolas Cage act is like jazz music. You never know which way it's going to go. It's all these different riffs coming out at the same time. He could take you anywhere. And there's a little bit of that in this, but there's also a very real person in Paul Matthews. So um, i got to say, I really love this film. It's very funny in parts, very dark in parts as well, but absolutely winning by the end. So um, I'd like to see him get an Oscar nomination out of this because uh, he is doing some good work. He will not get an Oscar nomination for this movie. I hope he does. Really he will not. This film is just not part of the conversation. And I find it that a bit strange. It sort of seems like... The Golden Globes. And he's had some acclaim. The Golden, the, Go the Golden Globes have nothing to do with Oscar conversation. It's true. It's part of so it looks the awards the... season roster. I, look, I, I, I yep. just hope he does because he's in the mix. It's probably not going to come down to the final five or six or whatever numbers there are, but 
it's it's um it's an interesting performance from him and a very smart film as well. Yeah, five to six characters. That is the mix. That that's being in the mix. But anyway, uh, look, this is a film where I saw the trailer for it without really knowing it, and I was immediately keen to go and see it. But then I had the opportunity to go and see it, and making the decisions leave my house to go something that just felt like it was just Nicolas Cage doing more meta stuff, which we've kind of seen him do before in a just a way which we know that he's going to play it earnestly, but in a sense from just the very sort of casting of him is a big wink to the camera. I just sat there and thought, I'm just going to sit down and watch more LA Law. I just didn't care enough. No, and that's my concern with this movie. But th that's my concern no, with this movie. I just don't feel that it's really offering anything that is new enough when you have the greater uh, complexity of having hired Nicolas Cage as your lead. In a way, I feel this movie might have been better served if they went for someone who hadn't done that kind of work before. If it was, say, like Mark Ruffalo or someone like that, I'd be very keen and it wouldn't have even been a hesitation to go and see a movie with someone like that in a lead. But just Nicolas yeah. Cage, it just kind of feels as though he's just walked that meta tightrope just too often at this point. Okay, no, like if you're, if you're taking that from the trailer, then the trailer certainly hasn't done his job. I know what you're saying about casting someone different. Ruffalo would be too young for what this character has to pull off. But yes, I can see what you. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about the holdovers next. Maybe Giamatti could have pulled off something like this. But, um, but yeah, no, this is this is uh, any reservations you have because you think this is Cage going through the motions. Um, I encourage anyone to just to get out and see it because it's oh. uh, it, it, it's not that at all. I mean, I don't think he's going through the motions. I don't think Nicolas Cage has ever gone through the motions. Okay, I think every time Nicolas Cage appears on screen, he is doing something which is singular to the moment and really bringing something unique to it. But there's just something about the fact that I have seen him do something with that same spirit of intent before. And to me, that doesn't make it a worthwhile trip out of the house. But look, if I see this on a streaming service, I'll absolutely be hitting play on it at some stage. It is called Dream Scenario in limited release. I know some of the major chains have it in their cinemas, but it's not everywhere, so you may have to seek it out uh, in release right now. What's up next, Dan Barrett, if that is your Well, what's... Uh, it is not. Uh, what is up next? Uh, Julio... Um, oh, gosh. Sorry, I was... <laughs> I, I was trying to think of a like, great name. Uh, what about, like, uh, Enrique Carroccio? Uh, look, I'm going to talk about True Detective, Night Country. It's a fourth season reboot, well, it's an anthology series, but it's kind of a reboot of the production. Uh, let's play a clip and we'll talk about what's going on here when we get back. What happened in the last case you worked with tomorrow? That was good. Until it wasn't. too late simon cast your mind back to we'll say 2014 but i think my story actually takes place in 2013 actually that's true because true detective launched in january 2014 uh the nice. experience that many of us had with that tv show started a few months prior so this is back in 2013 when hbo launched the promotions for true detective and you had those amazing black and white photos of series stars woody harrelson and uh, matthew conaghy mcconaughey um, they're looking very sharp in their suits and we didn't know exactly what this program was we didn't know well just anything about it 
Uh, then the show started and week by week, people were talking because people could not wrap their minds around exactly what this program was. Uh, this oh, is yeah. a show that introduced a lot of mystery box elements to it. Is there something supernatural happening? Is it actually a pretty straight uh, cop thriller? You couldn't really quite tell. And the mood was playful while still being incredibly dour, while still playing it very narrow and very earnestly. It was deeply compelling television that had me hooked in from episode one right through to the final eighth episode. And not only was the show itself just damn watchable, okay, but also like just every element of it from that original promotion campaign through to the opening titles, the theme song, all of it felt just incredibly fresh and vibrant. And even though it wasn't really doing anything entirely new, new, it still felt so fresh and new and spoke to that moment of premium TV that we kind of found ourselves in. Uh, this is a show that probably Agreed. could have been accused of being uh, difficult man related prestige programming which if you remember 2013-14, conversation at that point was about needing to shift premium TV away from being so much about that. This was very much a post-Sopranos, post-The Wire, post-Mad Men, post-The Shield TV program. But these were still difficult men. These are still problematic sort of lead characters. Season two came along and they just kind of tried to replicate the same, but it was never really quite as good. They played with the structure a little bit more and... It just never really hit the mark. Who was the stars of that one? Was I was hoping that? you wouldn't ask me that because I was just trying to remember. I know, I was trying to think myself. Head. Who was the one was the Mahasha Ali one? That was that, that was season that three. Was three. But what you need to understand, right. Simon, is if I'm glossing over something, it's because I don't know right. the answer myself. And if I, I did, really I probably would have mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look. <laughs> so season two of the show, and I'm trying to cheat right now in doing it. Um, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. It'll come to us. Yeah, uh, Taylor Kitsch was in there, uh, Colin oh, Farrell, course, yes. and Rachel yes. McAdams and Vince Vaughn. So again, really good cast. Got it. Okay, yeah. and they up. Yes. Yeah, they shifted it from being two cops to three cops. And my only real memory of that program was that I remember reviewing the first maybe three episodes of it. And it wasn't particularly holding me. I then ended up uh, posting some reviews around the place. I think on my former website, Televised Revolution, I ran a review there. And it wasn't positive. It was not a glowing review. Everyone who had watched that first season, as I had, were just outraged that I could dare suggest something negative about True Detective. At which point, uh, I think I'd watched maybe the first two episodes. Uh, someone's mm. like, oh, how many episodes have you watched? And I'm like, oh, I'll watch the first two episodes. And then they're like going, oh, well, you can't review a TV program based on two episodes. And I'm mm. thinking, well, like, when is the appropriate number of episodes to be able to review a TV program? Sorry, this has been a bugbear now for like eight years. When is the appropriate <laughs> number of episodes to review it? Like, am I allowed to review the TV show Cheers until all 231 Focus, episodes of it? Like, Focus. at what point is that permissible? But that swings around all of that comes into focus with this new season where the second season hadn't been received that well. And then other people, other critics posted their reviews. They were equally dismissive. Audiences watched that. They were dismissive. The third season came along and that was a bit of like a Hail Mary. They were really hoping they could recapture the enthusiasm that first season had. And it was released mm -hmm. to maybe sort of middling interests. As a result of the fact that the following two seasons hadn't really played out so well, uh, Nick Pizzolatto, who's the guy that had written every episode of the program, or at least co-written every episode of it, he was more or less shown the door. Uh, he's got his name on the new series, but he's not involved. 
the new series is in its high creative reboots. Yeah. 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 It's in its high creative reboots. Okay. But McConaughey and Harrison have gone after the first season. So that's irrelevant, Simon. I don't know what you're even bringing it up for. Okay. So as with every season, brand new crime, brand new location, brand new cast. um, And with this one, brand new creative team behind the scenes. So who do we have here for season three? Oh, sorry, season four. I've got a young ingenue named Jodie Foster. And look, let me just say, when I found out Jodie Foster was going to be starring in True Detective, uh, first I had to go and collect my hat, which was blown right off. Uh, and then after that, I was just complete putty for this. The idea of Jodie Foster yeah. on board doing a regular TV program, hugely exciting. The fact it was a yeah. True Detective program for HBO, like, you know, come on, come on. Like, yeah, how does no, one even process this? Yep. Start... Start layering in some of the other cast here. You've got great character actors like Fiona Shaw and Christopher Eccleston are in there. Uh, you've got Carly Reese, who's the um, co-star of this. I don't really know her from anything else. So um, it's been a, a real fun discovery, uh, oh, just like incredible. seeing her in this. Uh, the internet yeah. tells me that she's a former world champion in two weight classes. So I guess that's boxing. Sure. Uh, she's anyway, got like a really sort of... Um, interesting phys- well interesting in that she's like a muscular woman physique um and we'll talk about that in just a moment uh, but then some other actors as well john hawks is in here and he is fantastic in this i'm uh, like john hawks is always amazing it seems redundant to say john hawks is fantastic in something but he just is and he's here playing a fairly um scuzzy uh police officer What's really interesting about this season is that True Detective up until now has been very dude heavy. Okay. There's been a lot of interrogation as to what it means to be a male protagonist for a cop drama. Uh, And even though there have been female leads within the series uh, up until now. So I mean, Rachel McAdams, the aforementioned Rachel McAdams, uh, she was there in the second season, but even so it was still Colin Farrell. It was still Taylor Kitsch. It was very much an exploration of them and what it meant to have them leading the TV programs here. It is flipped entirely to be a very female centric drama. Now I'm going to talk about that aspect of it a little bit more later in the show when I'm reviewing the new Apple TV plus program that I've forgotten the name of, but I'll be talking about in just a few moments. Criminal record, uh, gosh, yep. what's it called criminal record, very dull name. Um, and both of them have a very similar thing that they want to interrogate talking about female cops. Okay. But I think the true detective show does it so much better and we'll get to a criminal record in just a short bit. But what's really interesting about this, you've got Jodie Foster, who is the mother of a teenage girl who, um, the introduction to the teenage girl is a very pissed off Jodie Foster character having to pick up her daughter after there'd been an incident where her daughter had been, um, share, well, there'd been some illicit photographs taken and discovered. Um, her daughter is a few years older than the other girl in the photos. And so that creates some tension. And so she's pissed off and, uh, then there's like a drunk driver nearby. And so Jodie Foster takes all of her pissed offness and just starts sort of um, laying into this other woman who was being a danger on the roads. Uh, but you just sort of see like the way that the show is considering women and what they need to be able to do in order to be successful working as police while also dealing with a lot of their other issues sort of within their lives. Mm. It's just so um, under the surface text that I just thought this was magnificent to watch. There are so many dramas right now, (coughs) criminal record, okay, where it just becomes text, 
Okay, this, it's absolutely under the surface. It's telling us amazing um, crime story, but it's not treating us uh, like simpletons that haven't actually experienced uh, these sorts of texts en masse for like the last 10 years. Instead, this is just a really smart, really savvy approach to it. And so you've got the Jodie Foster, sorry, sorry, I see you raising your hand, but just give me one sec. You've got Jodie Foster going through this, but then you've just got this other younger cop who uh, is the aforementioned uh, Carly Reese. Uh, she's approaching from a different perspective in that she's also a woman who's dealing with uh, some of the other um, same professional and personal hurdles that the Jodie Foster character has clearly gone through, but she's a younger woman of the modern moment. Also, she seems like she's just a stronger physical and psychologically strong person at its core as well. It's going to be interesting to see both characters coming at it from different life perspectives, uh, different ages generationally, and see where that takes us through this season. As the opening two episodes for this, I, I just think it's a very exciting spread that they've laid out for us, and I'm very excited to see where it takes us over the course of the season. Totally on board with everything you say. The, the, um, the, the thing I find most interesting about Jodie Foster's performance is that we're used to her being playing a character who, for all her flaws, is kind of in charge. She can so, kind of roll with the punches and can, she can it, it, and she can sort of survive any situation. I, I love watching this character with the notion in my head that maybe this is Clarice Starling after her career went off track for some reason. Maybe she didn't reach the fullest potential of herself. Um, she's been sent to this Alaskan outpost. She finds herself in the middle of... Um, uh, oil and oil versus indigenous people's problems, and uh, is trying to balance that while trying to balance a gay indigenous stepdaughter as well. Um, I've found to to see Jodie Foster kind of twitch and anger and try to keep cool while not always keeping cool. This was one of her most affecting and most real person performances that I've seen in a long time, and I just fell in love with her all over again in this in this role. See, I really see this character not quite differently, but, you know, certainly differently than you do here. You're seeing her just as someone who could be like a Clarice Styling who's ended up here. I read this character, everything about her says, this is a woman that has been a cop in this place. And even if not a cop, she's certainly been part of the community, part of the very chilly, uh, is it technically Alaska that we're in? Mm, like, yeah, I think they, it is. They, like, I just assumed it was Alaska, but... I. Yeah, I just don't know if I read in something just immediately and should not. Yeah, they're AFP, Alaskan Federal Police, or APF, Alaskan Police Force. Yeah, no, it is Alaska. I could remember the town, which is like um, Elise or something. Ennis, yeah. Ennis, Alaska, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so Alaska, but this is just a very harsh landscape to be within. Um, And to me, like, this is a woman who... And Jodie Foster in this is made up so that you're seeing, like, her... I mean, Jodie Foster's an incredible-looking lady, okay? But... Even with that, like they've really sort of gone light on the makeup, if not maybe just yeah. enhanced her age. Like you really are seeing her for what a woman of this age probably would be a glamorous version, mm. but you know, still. Uh, what is probably worth mentioning is just the plot of this one, because that's pretty important. Uh, with any true detective, the actual plot of her isn't as important as seeing the stars go through some sort of a embodiment of character. That is kind of what drives these programs. But the plot is still very much what's going to have you there week to week. Uh, this one has a... Um, 
In the same way the first season really lends into the, is this possibly supernatural? This really leans into that as a possibility. Oh, uh, it starts out with the scene that we've seen in many things before, whether that's the thing, whether that's the thing ripoff from the X-Files Ice, um, or one of the many other TV movies that have kind of had the exact same conceit. Uh, we've got a research station in Alaska, very dude heavy um, environment where something goes wrong and then, you know, one of them turns and murders the rest of them or whatever. Uh, in this, well, you so see there's an incident. Yeah. yeah, you see this, there's an incident in the very opening sequence of it with a great um, scene cameo from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, there is nothing goes wrong when you've got a clip from Fer Ferris Bueller's Day Off playing in the background it's of a scene. Right way it's to just, start any show, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so something takes place by the time that Jodie Foster and the rest of the crew turn up to investigate. Uh, everyone's gone missing. It's been 48 hours at least. There's a tongue on the ground. Um, it, I'm not going to say who it belongs to. Uh, but certainly there is a mystery at hand. And you as a viewer, because you've experienced movies and TV shows before, you assume there's a supernatural element to it. We know that there's a character who is seeing a ghostly apparition who, by the end of the first episode, has led us to where the bodies of um, at least a couple of the people from the uh, research station have ended up. Yeah. There's certainly something at play, but is this a supernatural story? Who knows? Stick around full season, folks. That's, I guess that's the legacy of the first season of, of um, True Detective, that, that supernatural, was it the Yellow Cave or something that was in that first series? Yeah. And, um, and and that that cast a long shadow that goes all the way to season four, and it, it it's great to have that element to it. Now, I, I I'm guess I'm sensing from what you're saying, you haven't gone through all the episodes yet. No, I very purposefully stuck with just the first two episodes because I want to see okay. how this all is right. going to play out, and I actually kind of want to be part of the conversation as it happens. Oh, uh, yeah. all right. I blasted through them. We did like we did the yeah. whole thing in sort of three nights. So yeah, I, I, I it's um I it. it it holds up right to the end. It's a terrific piece of television, um, and I, I think it's going to be spoken of very highly when when next year's. It'll be remembered right through till this time next year when the the awards are being handed out uh, on so many levels. It's a terrific bit of television. Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, the other thing, just to know, is that the creative behind this, uh, it's a lady named Issa Lopez. Uh, I don't actually really know her that much. I don't think no, I've I didn't seen the see name before either. Yeah. She's got a huge feature. She directs all the episodes. Um, she co-writes a lot of the episodes. She's, she's an amazing talent. And for to pull off something like this without a, coming with a big track record is a, is a major achievement. Oh, look, it isn't like she doesn't have a track record. I mean, she's been working as a credited writer since the early 90s. So she's certainly yeah. been around. Uh, it's just that she's uh, primarily been working in Mexico and uh, I guess just not really a lot of, you know, um, broader awareness of her work. Uh, but if you look at the work she's got coming up, it seems as though there's a lot of American stuff coming. So she's clearly been making a career transition and is like, and actually I don't even want to speculate on that. I don't really quite know enough about her, but I do know that from this, I want to know a lot more. Like she is very much in control of this program and it's incredibly exciting. True Detective is dropping on HBO in the US and binge uh, here in Oz, January fourteen, if I remember correctly. Is that am I got? Oh uh, right yeah, one so there? it's it's Sunday nights in the US as all the HBO dramas tend to roll out, and then Monday afternoon we'll see them here in Australia. Which leads us into in praise of Jodie Foster, our intermission segment. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. Dan Barrett, I thought, given uh, she is one of the preeminent actresses of our generations, uh, we should have a look at the our favourite performances and favourite films of the wonderful Jodie Foster in praise of Jodie Foster, we're calling this segment. She has a commanding presence, as we've just mentioned in True Detective Night Country. She's more beautiful than ever at 61, as we, we've already mentioned, has been in front of the camera for over half a century, started as a child actor. According to IMDb, she's got 82 screen credits from which to pick our favourite Jodie Foster performances. Um... We'll narrow it down to three. We'll probably mention some others. Um, why don't you kick us off with your first of three? So, I don't like my experience with Jodie Foster is very much a product of my age. So, if you think mm. about like some of her like most iconic titles, things like The Accused, things like Silence of the Lambs, I was just too young to really actively engage with them when they came out. So I was 11 years old when Lambs came out. I was eight years old when The Accused um, aired. So when I think about her, it's very much as a contemporary actor, I'm seeing her in films which are probably not necessarily those that are considered to be her iconic roles. Uh, probably one of the most iconic is having appeared in Contact. Uh, like that's probably the biggest title from me being a grown-up adult. Because I don't want to say that she's had a decline in career because I don't think that's really strictly true. But I think she's just had one of these interesting careers where she started out doing... I mean, she's been working as a child actor, okay, from, what is it, like the very late 60s? Like 69, 70. the first roles... Yeah, no, but prior to that, I think it was back into the early 60s, she was in, in some really young stuff. 19, 1969, according to IMDb, okay. in an episode of the Doris Day Show. Yeah, so if people... <laughs> Yeah. So if people saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the young actress who Leonardo DiCaprio has the very extended chat with, like that is based on Jodie Foster. Like that is a Jodie Foster analog character. Uh, so that's that's been her. And so as she sort of, I guess, came of maturity being an adult woman, that's really where a lot of her um, biggest titles and probably... On that day where she passes, the New York Times is going to look back on titles probably from that sort of um, early to mid-80s through to the early mid-90s will be the peak of Jodie Foster. Where I came down was probably the sort of slide from prominence, but also I think slightly deliberate. I think this is her retreating and just trying to enjoy life a bit, a oh, bit more. Course, yeah. So yeah. certainly some great films in there. So for me, it's things like Contact. It's things like Panic Room, right. Flight Plan, Inside Man. Um what was that movie with George Clooney a little while ago? Was she in that? No, I'm confusing actors entirely. She wasn't in that at all. Um, has she even been with Clooney on screen? I I'm concerned she hasn't. I'm concerned she's done a lot of work with Mel Gibson and not with George Clooney. This just doesn't seem right. It was, it was of a certain time, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so look, uh, when I think about my favourite um, roles, I'm just going to blatantly say contacts, but then beyond that... Let's go contact is your first one. I'm going to, like, when it comes to my second one, just be warned, I'm not going to give a title for my second and third one, and I'm going to build on what I was saying there and explain why. But Contact, to me, is an all-time top 10 favourite Dan Barrett movie. I adore this movie. What I love about it is this came out very much as, and I'm sure it was commissioned 
um, off the back of the X-Files. Okay, the X-Files in that early 90s period made ufology really cool. Uh, the scientific approach of the X-Files sort of opened the doorway to that. So as there were a whole bunch of X-Files knockoff movies and TV shows, they lent very much into the idea of alien abductions. Uh, you think about things like fire in the sky based off a real UFO abduction, if you can believe in such ridiculous things. Uh, you've got yeah. things like that. You've got, uh, there was that... Um, Charlie Sheen filmed The Arrival, which came at a very similar time to Contact. And they were all just playing around with the idea of UFO abductions and conspiracies and the idea of, is there aliens amongst us? What was great about Contact coming out is that it looked at the idea of um, life away from this planet from a very scientific perspective, or at least from the perspective of scientists who are actual human beings. This was not really an exploration of outer space as much as interrogating what it means for somebody to have a lifelong um, quest, a ambition in life to discover something only to find that when the door is open to it, they're not necessarily believed and they are for, for all of the progress that they've made, they're being subjugated to the background. And what does it mean to someone? And what if Jodie Foster's performance makes it one of her best? Fine film. Look, I just sort of think of it's with any role, like you always think, oh, I can't picture anybody else in this role. And that's always just a little bit silly because you haven't gone through a casting process or really sort of considered what else that role could be. But this is just one of those few times where I actually really can't picture anyone else in this role. She's got, there's a quality Jodie Foster has where it's a very sort of internal performance, but she's not really hiding it from you on camera, like it's surface while still being internalized. Uh, and that's sure. kind of what this okay. role absolutely needed, playing that role of Dr. Ellie Arroway. I got my surname correct. Uh, it just sort of seemed as though this is a character who didn't really have any friends, doesn't have any family members who are alive, and that's a big plot point within the film. Uh, like yeah. she just doesn't have anyone to lean on, and so she's got professional relationships around the place. But And also even the romantic um subplot of this is barely even romantic it's kind of she ends up having sex with the guy and just kind of latches onto him when he's in a room because she knows him he's just the person who's in her life it's not even necessarily a close relationship by any doesn't, means doesn't doesn't hurt that he looks like matthew mcconaughey but it may it was a no. good on-screen pairing that that um that that brought him together all right okay so we're going to lead with contact for dan's number one what um for just just the last thing as well uh look i mean this obviously comes out comes along as um, an actor who came out later in life as well but just interesting that in any of her movies that you know i've sort of grown up watching when i was a kid so being into an adult it's not like there was really any sort of um sexuality as part of what we're seeing on screen like, it just sort of seems though that's locked off from what she's wanting to bring to the screen as an actor. And to me, that's kind of, yes. in part, the strength of her. With a with a, with a a small asterisk in that she did, or, or Hollywood did try to shoehorn shoe her into some romantic roles that I actually think are very good filmed. And, and, and I'm most notably thinking of Summersby with Richard Gere. But Sorry, I was going to say, which is... films are you thinking of beyond Summersby? Because I can't think of any other film <laughs> that falls into that category. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, yes, they're very good friends and they've made some films together, but they tried to do that to a certain extent with with Maverick as well, with Mel Gibson and, and Jodie Foster. And, and, and that was more a fun, playful type of attraction, whereas Summersby was a steamy kind of um, down and dirty barnyard romance. So... Um, 
I think she's still great in both films, but it was certainly at Hollywood's beckoning that they did that. So I'm going to jump in here very quickly with, uh, for me, she, I'm a, being a little bit older, I still experienced her child performances when she was a child actor in things like all the Disney films she's made, particularly Freaky Friday, for which she's very well known. I remember seeing Freaky Friday at the movies in, in, in the George Street complex there. Um, but... There are two films from 1980 which are not really spoken of. One is called Carney, in which she uh, takes a um, job with a travelling circus and she's there opposite a, uh, Gary Busey in one of his early crazy roles and uh, musician Robbie Robertson, the late Robbie Robertson, who did the soundtrack for Killers of the Flower Moon and was nominated for that. Um, Carney's a very dark, strange performance and a, and, and a film and, and a dark performance from her, a very deliberate role for her to try to leave the the... Disney stuff behind, but also in 1980, she made this incredible film called Foxes. Uh, she plays one of four teenage girls who live in sort of the shopping malls and parking lots of Los Angeles, San Fernando Valley. Um, it's about the lives they lead as they they sort of come of age in this very uh, um, adult lifestyle in all senses of the world. She stars opposite Cherry Curry, who was one of the runaways in that sort of punk girl group um and this has some really dark heavy scenes and it was the first film where we all sort of went wow Jodie Foster's growing up and she wants the audience to come along with her as she grows up um it obviously it came after Taxi Driver so she'd already played the prostitute in that and made a, a huge impact in that film but this was a very determined path she was taking into adult roles by taking uh, young woman roles that were very challenging to both her and her audience. And Foxes, if you can see it, I guess it's on one of the streamers. It's not really, it wasn't a box office hit. Um, and it came just before teenage moviegoers took over the multiplexes. So um, it wasn't considered a big release at the time, but it now stands as this iconic sort of look at Los Angeles teenagers and, and one of her great performances. Have you ever seen Foxes or Carney? Carney is another film that's all but disappeared. Look, I didn't even know Carney existed up until this very moment, to be completely honest. Yeah. Uh, Foxes I haven't seen, but I'm certainly very aware of Foxes. Yeah. yeah. What's, your sec what's your second one? You want to go on with, with some more context? Oh, look, you got another one? the second one, I was just going to sort of blend into the same thing. So, uh, again, just sort of being of the age I am, uh, in the 80s, uh, Jodie Foster as a presence in those Disney movies were still fairly regular on TV. Like, I'd still play those mm, with some regularity. Sure. So I saw a bunch of those movies. So that was very much there. But the thing that I probably have the greatest connection to from her early work from that age is she was the voice of Pugsley Adams in the Adams Family cartoons of the 1970s. <laughs> yes, she was. So yes, I've seen was. so many hours of her as Pug Pugsley Adams that I can never really quite separate that entirely from her um, overall career. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is all part of the vast tapestry that is Jodie Foster's Hollywood career. To sit down with her and talk about her growing up through this period may be tough because it was child labour back then was generally abused, although she seems like a tough person with tough management at the time, so maybe she held her own course, but she'd have so much to tell about some of Hollywood's great names. So, um, For me, the next film I'm going to look at is a 1976 film. This was another one that came off the back of, of Taxi Driver. It's called The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. You can drop it right in there. Um, 
in The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, she plays a 13-year-old girl uh, who lives with her uh, who, who lives with her, her father. Um, they befriend a, a teenage amateur magician um, and she invites him in. But suddenly the father disappears and then the nosy neighbour disappears. Um, and we're trying to sort of judge, is this a mean little girl who's doing horrible things or is she really the victim? And it's a really complex um, young actress's performance in a film that could have just sort of degenerated into creepy sort of door slamming suburban horror story. Um, Jodie Foster does some amazing work in this as in, in a sort of late teens um, acting career. Now, Simon, the last one I just want to talk about was what was the name of that movie where she was a NPR-style reporter who used to go around just recording the streets, the audio of the streets? Mm, that's a good one. There was one called The Brave One where she was... Like, I feel that might have been it. Attacked. Yeah, that's it's like a revenge. Yeah, it's called The Brave One. Not one of my favourite films of hers, but yes. Strong yeah, look, I don't think... It I don't think a great film, but when I think about that sort of later era, Jodie Foster, like that's one of the roles that sort of really resonates. It's just that image of her sort of walking around the streets of New York. And to me, that just seems like an ambitious failure as a movie. Like mm. ultimately that film could have gone down as one of the greats and been seen as a bit of a metatextual throwback to um, her sort of retreading sort of similar the accused um, style ground. Uh, but yeah, the film just never, I think, worked entirely effectively, but I just always appreciated that film. Yeah, yeah, I thought the politics was fairly ugly of it. There was a, a slew of films that came out of that time, An Eye for an Eye with Sally Field and a little bit later The Brave One with Jodie Foster where they where they, they take the law into their own hands, Death Wish style, and they sort of had this patina of of seriousness and, and high brownness because Sally Field and Jodie Foster were in them, but they were kind of just sort of riffs on Death Wish. So there was an ugliness yeah, but- there that I didn't sort of dig. I mean, thinking about them, though, sort of mid to late 2000s, like this is uh, post-Iraq war. It's very much about people having felt powerless politically for the last couple of years. Uh, like you can kind of see where that sort of storytelling started coming from. Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. The last one for me, and we've mentioned it a couple of times, and, and I, we should point out we have sort of steered away from Silence of the Lambs because that clearly is a classic film and a classic performance in every way, but I thought we'd, we'd dig deep. Are you going to talk about Elysium? No, I'm not going to talk about Elysium. Um, what was the one she made, Hotel, and it was this big all-star cast, Jeff Goldblum was in it playing a piano, and Hotel Terminus? No, it was something else. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but it was strange. Sure we've mentioned about. a couple of times, we've mentioned a couple of times the one I'm going to mention as The Accused is, is my final choice. Um, at that point, she was... She wasn't Hollywood's biggest star and she was taking on this role of a rape victim who, alongside Kelly McGillis, and we should point out that um, Kelly McGillis had top billing in this film despite, you know, she was a much bigger star coming off Top Gun and a couple of other films that um, Jodie Foster was considered sort of not the second tier actress in the cast, but not the big star and when and when Jodie Foster went on to win the Oscar for this performance featuring this hideous horrible sequence on screen and play the woman who has to fight back first against the rapist and then against the system that almost protects the rapist then it's a um it was an extraordinary performance and I can remember sitting in 
Greater Union Cinema Parramatta watching it with a full crowd and just the silence in the cinema as the scene itself unfolded and then the rousing sort of recovery that Jodie Foster has to go through in the film to, to come out the other end. So, yeah, The Accused is a performance I'll, I'll never, ever forget, along with so many other great. She's a she's Hollywood royalty. Um, and the fact that she's doing still doing amazing work in, in True Detective Night Country is um, testament to that. Dan Barrett, we get to this segment we now called What Else Have You Been Watching? We've got four in this section, which could blow out. Uh, one of them could lead to a major argument. One of them I haven't seen. Let's see. Dan, what else have you been watching? Okay. I assume the major argument is going to come to the new Peacock series, Ted. Uh, this is a prequel series to the very popular and beloved movie, Ted, and the even more beloved movie, Ted 2. Oh, gosh. Classics. <laughs> Classics across the board. No, look, okay, so Ted was a uh, minor box office smash, uh, fairly low budget, you know, did a couple of weeks of success out there. I don't think it's a film that culturally, yeah, I don't think culturally it necessarily resonated that much. I think people thought it was fine and then got on with their lives. It just kind of came and went. But because the film did pretty well box office wise, it gave them cover to go and do a second film, which I think just came and went. I don't think anyone really got along set in big numbers but in the age that we're in where seth mcfarlane is still riding high off the success of the family guy animated series uh and i guess maybe ted because all the rest of his big screen efforts have yielded um terrible box office and terrible critic reviews and very little sort of cultural resonance if you want to talk about avatar having no cultural footprint take a look at the works of seth mcfarlane but anyway (laughs) This is set in 1993. It's um, not the meeting of um, the guy that would become Mark Wahlberg. Uh, It's not like the meeting of him and Ted, but instead it's just a couple of years later when this guy is a teenager and getting involved in crazy antics with the bear. Oh, It's not good. Don't even. I've got no. I hate <laughs> Seth MacFarlane. I, I hate him like penis cancer. I don't want to see Ted. Um, I don't know. Well, I get some idea why they're making this because it's IP they can regurgitate, but the thought of anything to do with Seth MacFarlane, it just irks me terribly. Yeah, so look, this this it's very sitcom-y. Like, it's not Laugh Track sort of sitcom-y, but, you know, it's... Uh... It's basically this head movie, but in TV serialized form. As I guess like, the two is things it, to is it, as, is it as blue? So two things to keep in mind with this one. So first of all, is there's a sense of indulgence uh, with this production that is very um, reminiscent. It's an echo of what was happening with the Orville, being Seth MacFarlane's Star Trek homage. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think yep. about the Orville, basically it's Seth MacFarlane thinking, hey, I'd like to star in a Star Trek TV show. Let me bring part of my irreverent sense of humor, but let's also just go to when Star Trek was good, which is 1994 with Star Trek Next Generation. And I could be the lead of Star Trek Next Generation. And because he had some clout, he made that happen. Uh, this yeah. kind of feels the same. It kind of feels as though it's sort of a half thought out idea. There's obviously an element of passion in this. He clearly has joy from telling stories about this bear and having that sort of cheeky sense of humor. Like that's clearly what Mm. he's really into. And like, that's good. And you can feel that watching it as a viewer, but are you sharing in the fun 
And I'm not sure that's necessarily ever the case. And okay. you feel that here, like this is very much an opportunity for him with some of his preferred actors, uh, Scott Grimes, who you've seen in a bunch of um, McFarlane projects in the past, including the aforementioned Orville. He's here playing the yep. father. Uh, and then there's other sort of bit players that sort of regularly sort of crop up through it. But then the other thing to sort of keep in mind with it is that this is a series set in 1993, but the politics and attitudes of a lot of the characters feel very much like it's just trying to be like, it, it's a 2024 TV program. Uh, there's a character okay. in it who's the main guy's uh, older cousin who lives in their house for whatever reason. Uh, she's uh, concerned that uh, they're not talking about little people when they're using the word midget, banning that around in the household. And so she's sort of schooling them on the language they're using. Uh, then there's like other scenes where like he, he finds out that she sells pot to pay her way through uni. Uh, sorry, college. It's American. Uh, and so like he's there at her apartment talking to like her um, uh, housemate. Uh, and like the entire conversation just seemed like the modern contemporary conversations, but I don't understand why set it as a throwback if you're not necessarily going to engage in 1993. Instead, just do it wow. as its head TV series where it's in, 19, in 2024. Like, why not do that? All right. So what we have here is the perfect segue as to why I didn't like the holdovers. Okay. Well, we'll segue into that in like 30 seconds. Uh, right. I, I just kind of find it very interesting that this show is so preoccupied with being a conversation about woke politics and what's permissible while still being a prequel. Uh, you and I have argued about prequels in the past. I've got no time for them whatsoever. And a big reason is, is because it takes too much of the information you have on board as a modern viewer and tries to retroactively fit it into a narrative from a pre-established story. And when you start doing that, it just kind of corrupts everything that follows after it narratively. It never really fits. Mm -hmm. There's just no positives that come out of doing a prequel. And this is absolutely testament to a big problem with doing it. Okay. All right. Let's get to my views on the holdovers. Now, I preface this by saying I totally understand I'm in the minority. It's at 94 or 96% or something like that on Rotten Tomatoes as, as we record this. Uh, Giamatti's just won the Golden Globe and is a heavy, uh, the whole film and all creators involved with it um, is a, a heavy award season contender. So, yes. What I didn't like about the film, and I didn't like several elements of the film, but one of the key elements that I didn't like about the film is that this is a movie that's set at one of the most volatile points in American social history. Uh, it's set in 1970. At this point in time, the Vietnam War is raging. Uh, campuses like the one featured in the film are going through enormous uprisings. There, It is the most volatile point in American history. You wouldn't know that from watching The Holdovers. This is a film that chooses to ignore the very era, era it wants to set itself in just to create the illusion that this is a 1970s-style film. Um, when the film opens, and I mean really opens with a, uh, an R-rating credit, an R-rating sort of uh, title card on there and... Uh, Alexander Payne puts in film scratches and sound that makes it sound like it's running off film. Um, it's all it's all an illusion. Um, I was immediately offside with that because it's a con. He's trying to invoke using 
elements that we recognize from 70s style films um to to give this movie some kind of cultural setting some kind of um uh, importance with regard to the time it's set in when in fact there's none it's he just wants to make it look like a, a 70s film the characters i thought giamatti was particularly grating uh, overacting to the extreme he's would, would essentially be unemployable in the in the manner in which he behaved in this time and the young kid who i thought was really good um in sort of a young tom hanks kind of way um the journey that they go on is so telegraphed and is so obviously destined for a certain point this film wants to be a film from one of the most adventurous and exciting times, maybe the last great adventurous and exciting time in American filmmaking, and it doesn't want to take any risks. It is so diagrammatic and so um, structured in the way it tells its story, there wasn't a single surprise throughout it. Some some cute dialogue and, and quick-witted dialogue and that sort of stuff is fine. doesn't make it a smart movie, though, and I just think this was, in, while being entirely watchable, generally fairly forgettable. Okay, so in big part, you and I are watching very different movies, is probably, and also you and everyone else in the world who all love this movie. Doesn't make my you know, opinion wrong. Doesn't make my opinion well, it, invalid. It makes, it makes some of your opinions wrong. So first of all, criticism, no, criticism all. of the time that it's set in. Uh, the film is a three-hander, effectively, with a bit more of an emphasis on the two male leads. But the third hander, the third um, stool leg cropping up the um, holdovers, is uh, Divine Joy Randolph, who plays the character Mary. She is a woman who is dealing with the trauma of having lost her son in the Vietnam War. Uh, this speaks very much to the moment. It's this quiet... Um, Sorry, there's another aspect which I think ties into this in a second, but it's a quiet sense of loss which dominates her life and will continue to dominate her life. Like, I don't think that there's another time in history where you could probably have a character who feels so insular dealing with a loss like this. I think that as soon as you hit the 1990s, if someone's been lost in the Gulf War or beyond, uh, you've got, I guess, maybe a lot more support structures in place for people that have lost servicemen, family members, but... I think that she was left to her own devices emotionally and psycho psychologically. I feel that is very much on display within this program. The fact that you were talking about, oh, there was like all this political, political upheaval taking place. It wasn't on campuses like this. That was happening on university campuses. This is happening in an out of the way high school environment, a um, boarding school for boys. There wasn't political upheaval taking place on this. These were kids who were just getting by, waiting to get to their very wealthy is, families. All the kids in this are one percenters, Simon. Okay, there's no political yeah, upheaval coming from stating, these guys. That's stating that these kids didn't have any agency with what was going on in their country, that this was a totally removed. And that's... Well, that is the total removal is the next part I wanted to get to, which was the reason why it needs to be set back here is because... Part of the plot line around this is about teenage boys who are stuck for the summer, summer, sorry, winter, sorry, it's US, so it's Christmas time, uh, stuck in the middle of the winter, okay, at this house with no, nothing to do outside of the company of each other and the teacher and also the woman that runs the uh, food hall. Ultimately, if you set it any time later than that where they have access to, if it's the 80s, suddenly cable television probably starts playing a role in it. Suddenly you find all these other technological creeps that come into their lives. Ultimately, the 
earliest time you could set a story like this and actually have a sense of removal from the world for these characters is in that late 70s period. Like that's the earliest you can do the story. So it makes all the sense in the world, the time that it's set in and for this to be reflecting the politics of the time. The only time politics should creep in is really with that woman dealing with her loss because the other people, this is a guy that only lives within that school. He never goes visiting the local town. He's got no interest. He's How a man of How does she ever books. deal with her loss in, in Alexander Payne's film? How does she ever deal with her loss other than through the prism of these two white guys? They don't even want to that, hear that's her an, That's, an, that's that, a different conversation, that, Simon. If, if that's your a, argument, that awful, then I think that's fine. There's that, there's that awful scene where uh, she breaks down at the party and she's had a bit to drink yep. and her grief comes out. And as they're walking her back to the car, the two of them are only arguing about how they can best get out of that evening. That's the film. That is the film's biggest problem in a nutshell. They've got this totally manipulative character played, played by Divine Joy Ralph uh, Randolph who is meant to represent the grief that America is showing for the lost sons of Vietnam when in fact this film is not at all interested in 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 exploring that grief or her grief well I don't think she's representative of America's grief I think she's representative of her own grief okay it's but the only the this film gives us into the most volatile point in American military history the thing with this the movie, though, Simon, yeah, but the movie's not about Vietnam. It's about three very insular people who are all dealing with their own insular issues while being stuck together. Okay, it would actually be it's incredibly. Two well, it would, hours it would be of self-centered whining. This is a, this is a yeah. This I, I just found it infuriating that this film should be about these not particularly interesting people with one percent problems. At a, t at a time when it so much more could have been said, both in 1970 and in 2024, 2023. Well, I think you're just after it to be a different move than what this movie is actually interested in talking about. And that's not the movie's fault. That's you bringing additional stuff to the film. Not at all. I'm not bringing anything I mean, to it. I, I'm bringing the fact I, that I, the I do film think... doesn't bring anything interesting to these characters. Look, I think all three characters are actually exceptionally interesting characters, and I was very interested in their own internal uh, turmoils and struggles. I think there's certainly complaints you can make about this movie. Uh, something which you addressed when I was talking about Ted, which I haven't really quite followed up on, is the idea of bringing 2024 concerns to some of these characters' lives. Uh, I certainly think that there is um, plot elements, and I don't want to ruin it because I think it's one of the elements of the journeys go on with the film, but as you start learning a bit about the backstory of the two men, each of them have elements in their lives which speak very much to modern-day concerns. I would certainly be happy to nod in agreement, saying that I don't know they necessarily approached that in a way that felt authentic to the time. Uh, and the rest of the spirit of the movie is the idea of if this was set in the 70s, what would this? if they made this movie in the 70s, how would it look and feel? Uh, so it does betray that to a certain degree, and I think that's a fair enough complaint, but I just don't see any validity in the other complaints that you've made here. All right, The Holdovers is in cinemas as we speak, doing very well by all accounts. People are raving about it. Um, oh, wait, wait, right, Simon, cr critically yeah. beloved, and audiences have really been responsive to it, but those audiences have been small in number. It has not been a successful movie for, um, yeah. Uh, I would Australia? suggest that maybe Alexander Payne is going to struggle a little bit to get that next movie made. Okay. 
Um, Dan, what else have you been watching? You alluded to a criminal record, criminal record earlier in the, the podcast. Oh, What's yeah, all, all I was going to say about this, uh, when we were talking about True Detective and how fresh and vibrant it all felt, I look at Criminal Record, which this is a UK-based program. It was made for Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, it's So much of this feels like TV that we've seen before and very much have done that. Uh, you've got two detectives, both at different life stages. One is much further into his career than the other young lady who's coming to it. Uh, the two actors being Peter Capaldi playing the older detective and Kush Jumbo playing the younger detective who's sort of at the beginning of her career, even though Kush Jumbo is a woman who's, you know, suddenly pushing 40 at the moment. So it felt like one of these weird things where she's slightly miscast by about 15 years. But, you know, just go with it because of Kush Jumbo and who doesn't love her? Uh, so you got these two uh, people. Uh, she has been sort of uh, a case has been dumped on her desk, which is told just to sort of brush it away because it's not really that big a deal. Uh, it's a woman that's made a phone call late at night about her abusive uh, boyfriend. She's concerned about her um, safety. Uh, she hasn't given her name. She hasn't really given enough detail, but she has said that there's a death that's taken place that the murder the accused murderer for it may not necessarily be guilty because her boyfriend has also taken credit for this and has some credibility. Uh, but anyway, she's very upset sort of shouting out this phone and like, there's not enough detail and they've looked into it. There's not really much there, but she goes a little bit further into it and approaches Peter Capaldi's character who was responsible for investigating the convicted murder of this other case. And so that's kind of where the lines intersect. It's kind of a bit of a been there, done that, wrote sort of storytelling going through a very sort of British-style murder mystery procedural. Okay, it's not like I've seen this exact story before, but I've certainly seen enough that's akin to it to kind of not be hugely excited by what's happening on screen. But what makes the series really work, and the reason why episode two finished up, oh, sorry, episode one finished up, and I just immediately went straight into episode two, is you've got Peter Capaldi and Kush Jumbo. The two of them are such a compelling partnership on screen that even when they're in an antagonistic relationship with one another, like it is, it's, it's not like it's fireworks on screen, but gosh, it is it's a, it's, it's a delicious dessert that you just want to tuck further and further into. We watched two episodes like you did straight into one and two last night. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you in that there's some, Fairly conventional beats in here. They use the thing like, hey, can I borrow your computer? Or, hey, can you do me a favor? So there's some of those traditional sort of tropey. Oh, it's not even that sort in, of. In, in it's not even that light work, Simon. It's just the entire structure and everything it's doing feels like we've seen this in every British procedural. I, like, there's, there's I, nothing I, fresh I, about it. But I do agree that those two characters, and especially the Weasley actor who's playing her commander he's he's looks like a troll <laughs> he's terrible i mean he's great in the part but he's a he's a terrible person terrible character um that those two generate enough energy and sparks and tension with their characters to overcome the more conventional elements of this so i like i'm on board for those two actors if i'm not entirely engaged with yet with the the broader sort of mystery that's going on yeah, thematically, this is very much playing around with what I think is another well-worn sort of issue of um, uh, this is a woman professional trying to be a woman professional in a world of uh, men professionals that are getting her down. And it's just such a surface text um, engagement 
as opposed to you look at what they're doing with this true detective season and it just kind of feels like it is so much smarter and knowing and is not really treating the audience like a simple sentence in a way that this kind of does uh there's a lot of really positive critical buzz around this but all i just kept on seeing was just these tired worn elements that i've seen before even from the name criminal record I'm like come on that is very beige <laughs> you look at the opening titles it feel like heated up hbo's titles from like 2013 like there's just nothing about this that just kind of really pops in the way that i've wanted no, it to no, I'm but i'm still going to watch the whole thing of, purely on the relationship yeah. of these two leads Absolutely right. And what else have I been watching, Dan Barrett? Well, just very quickly, I stumbled across an old 1981, and I point that is old now, um, Sylvester Stallone, Rutger Hauer film called Nighthawks, which was set in a, a crumbly New York. Uh, it's a kind of an international production in that uh, Rutger Hauer plays a terrorist who uh, has a point to be made, of which I can't remember what it was, but he was blowing up uh, jewellery shops in London before he decided to come to New York City. Uh, Nigel Davenport plays the head of the British investigation agency who uh, enlists Sylvester Stallone and Carl Weathers' New York cops to uh, help him on the ground in New York City. And before you know it, Rutger Hauer is uh, taking control of cable cars and throwing people out of that while he um while Sylvester's Lane flies by in a helicopter this is just an awesome bit of late 70s type of action darkness uh there's a real sort of sense of this wants to be Serpico or Dog Day Afternoon but we're just sort of heading into the 80s action boom as well so there's a little bit of Die Hard in there as well um sort of prefaces those great action films of the 80s it's just on the foxtel in-house channel it's a beautiful print it's in widescreen i hadn't seen this since the vhs scratchy rental copy days of like 30 odd years ago so probably even more now um but watching it in this in this good condition at uh Rutger Howe is just amazing and it also features a rare big screen performance from bionic woman Lindsay Wagner who is stunning and a um performance from the late Persis Cambatta who most Trekkies remember as the bald one from the first Star Trek movie but who was actually a, a major model and actress from her um from her native country of India, and this is one of her other American films. So get on to Nighthawks, check it out. Great action, great cast, all in their perfect physical prime, um, and a lot of good action as well. So that's on the Foxtel channel. I'm concerned you didn't mention Billy D. Williams, but I'm going to let it slide. Did I say Carl? I think I said Carl Weathers. I think it's Billy D. Williams. It is Billy D. Oh, Williams. Wasn't it Carl Weathers? Oh, no, Billy, Billy D. Williams, Williams is in this. Going to get emails about that, screenwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. Dan Barrett, let's go to the history segment. This podcast is running wildly out of control. January 15, 1977. Happy Days debuts for the first of what will be how many seasons on the ABC network? So what you don't know is I'm a Mad Keen Happy Days fan, and I can tell you this was 11 seasons, my friend. You magnificent bastard. Look at you. That was exactly right. January 18, 2008, which Oscar-winning actor, whose latest film as a director is in theatres now, was named a UN Messenger of Peace. So I'm not sure. My immediate assumption was Angelina Jolie, but she doesn't have a film in theatres now, so I'm not too sure. 
Mr. George Clooney, who we mentioned earlier in the podcast, ah. and whose film Boys in a Boat, or Boys in the Boat, is in theatres as we speak. Haven't seen it yet. Although is it in theatres? Quite good. Yeah. Yeah. Started January oh, um, 1. Really? Like in Australia? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to stop this podcast now. I'm off to see that. <laughs> January 20, 2006, which Disney Channel movie debuts, ultimately becoming the most successful of all time on the channel. High School Musical. Tuffy. Well done, sir. Well done. I could see you. I could see the cogs twisting in your brain to get that answer. It's time Although, for the birthday. I, I find it interesting. Sorry, I'm looking at your notes here. You said that it was the most successful yes. of all time on the streamer, but it's actually a channel. Which, oh, God. Here we well, go. did I said I did change it in my question. Yes. Look at, look at you going to the running sheet when you need to. Um, okay, let's do the <laughs> birthday quiz. No. Not happy birthday. No, not that. Please. No, not happy birthday. Okay. This is a tough one. You, if you've seen the graphic for this on our Facebook page, I've actually put warning toughest quiz ever. Ju- January 13, 1961, Julia Louise Dreyfus. January 14, 1969, one Jason Bateman. January 17, 1962, Jim Carrey. And our man, January 18, 1955, the great Kevin Costner. Now, these have all worked with one particular major Hollywood player, and that's the connection. Can you put together those four faces and come up with one overarching Hollywood A-list type? Okay, so I find it interesting you've referred to him as a major Hollywood player. If it was an actor, you probably would have said actor. If it was a director, you probably would have said director, which to me makes it think it's probably more like a producer, okay? Or at least has engaged with these people in different ways. So maybe you didn't say director because they may have worked with an act- as an actor, although maybe well they worked with them as an actor and not a director. And so working on that line of thinking, um, I yes. first started burrowing into Jill Louis-Dreyfus because she just has fewer credits across the board. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I started thinking about Rob Reiner. So Rob Reiner being the producer of the Seinfeld series through uh, Castle Rock Productions, and then also directed her in that movie North. Uh, then leading that over, who else do we have? Um, he directed Kevin Costner in, it was a mid 2000s film. I can't remember what it was. Oh no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. May have been late nineties. It was yeah. Rumor has it the Jennifer Aniston uh, yes. graduate uh, follow up thing, uh, and then beyond that, um, so I'm pretty sure he did like some voice work on something Jim Carrey related, but I'm not sure what that is. Like I've got something vaguely in the back of my head seeing them, uh, like like Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner doing something on a film together like that. But I don't know if it was a Jim Carrey film wow. or not. And then there's also the um, Justin, but. Uh, Justine Bateman, the Jason Bateman of it all, and that's where I lose it a little bit. But this is kind of where my brain was at when I started thinking about it. Points to you. You're absolutely on the right track. It's not Rob Reiner. Okay, who we got? You're absolutely right in that it's a a major Hollywood player who has been an actor, has been a director, has been a producer, and in that capacity, that's how he's worked with all these people. Let's go from Jim Carrey, starred in Ron Howard's The Grinch. Jason Bateman worked with Ron Howard. 
Ron Howard on Arrested Development, of course. Now we get into the tougher parts of it. Julia Louise Dreyfus's very first credit on IMDb as as the girl who throws confetti in an episode of Happy Days. Her very okay, she was also in Arrested Development, but go on. And she was also in Arrested Development. And Kevin Costner, one of his first acting gig was at, as frat guy number one in Night Shift, directed by Ron Howard. So... It was a tough bunch of celebrities to pull together this week. I didn't have a lot to work with, so it took a bit of deep diving. But there you go. That's um, That sums it all up. Okay. Well, I'm going to go looking for my Jason Bateman and Rob Reiner connection and see if I can make that stick. <laughs> it's got to be there. Bateman's been around for 100 years. I'm sure he's worked with Rob Reiner. <laughs> that's, that's why I didn't start trying to think through Bateman because, you know, yeah. even just like that period of like 1990 to 99, like, you know, I think they've had me there for like months. Screen watching, you can find us on Facebook at Screen Watching Podcast, Threads and YouTube at Screen Watching, or you can email us with all your opinions, Screen Watching Podcast at Gmail. Uh, my screen hyphen space.net has got a bit of extra content up there this content up there this week. So have a look at that. Dan, where can we see your other workings? Uh, I mean, many places. I would recommend alwaysbewatching.com. That's where I do my daily newsletter. It's got TV news. It's got a little bit of movie streaming news. It's got some video game stuff at times. Uh, there's just a whole bunch of exciting stuff there on a regular basis. Like, how could you go anywhere exciting. else on the internet? Why mm. would you? Yeah, would it just you? seems baffling to me. Thank you, buddy. Good Thank podcast. you, Simon. We'll be back next week uh, talking about more movies and TV shows. So many, you can't even poke a stick at them. Folks, we'll be back then.